0: This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast and I'm joined by my, as good as it's going to get, co-host Dave. (laughs) Hey,
1: what can I say? It's been a long week. A good week, but a long week.
0: Yeah, most good weeks are long weeks for some reason. I don't know. I guess not doing anything doesn't make something good. (laughs) Yep, that's also true. We're talking about not doing anything, we're not going to be doing anything for this episode and the next episode because we have a guest. We are being joined by Ian Eiberg, who is the CEO at Yams, to talk about something that was a, up until sure a recently, total mystery to both me and Dave, something called Unikernels. And um, unless you have something else to add.
1: Nope let's get into it
0: let's discover the secrets behind unikernels and how this makes life so much better or does it
1: so we are joined today by ian eiberg uh welcome to the podcast ian
2: thanks for uh having me happy to be
1: here hi Ian. so we're going to be talking today about unikernels and uh for, for those that are new to the glorious world of Unikernels, we'll be getting a bit of a, a masterclass. but before we go into that uh, ian please introduce yourself to the audience uh you know how did how did you get to this illustrious point in your career so far
2: <laughs> well uh yeah i mean um so yeah i'm ian iberg i'm the founder over at nano BMs and um have been kind of working in the the unicurl space for uh four to five years now um I uh, I kind of come from the security world, so m- most of my work has been done more in the, uh, the security realm. But you know, long time, long time uh, open source kind of Linux user. I I was handed my first floppies back in 94 with Slackware <laughs> on it. So that kind of tells you where I'm coming from. So if if it sounds like I'm talking trash on operating systems, that's not not the case at all.
0: <laughs> um,
2: but, uh, but yeah, just, you, you know, uh, got interested into this space uh, four or five years ago and haven't like really looked back.
1: So. Nice. So, I mean, let's just dive into the, to the topic, I guess. So, you know, unikernels, you know, I understand the, the, the idea has been around for actually quite some time, although it, they, they may be a new concept to many people.
2: Yeah, it's, a, it's an idea that's been kicked around off and on for, you know, well over 20 years now um, via different names. You know, some, some people have used uh, library operating systems in the past. Um, and, you know, I think it's one of these ideas that didn't quite make a lot of sense for a long time, namely because we didn't have virtualization everywhere. Uh, we didn't really have the public cloud, you know, 15 uh, some odd years ago. Um, it, there's a lots of different um, different technology changes and market changes that occurred to kind of allow us to to even happen. You, you know, a lot of people think unikernels are like containers two and in my view, that's totally not the case at all. It's a uh, it's um, you know we can compare and contrast them later on, but uh, to, to me, they're they're fundamentally different. It's it's more appropriate in my view to compare them to the Linux and the FreeBSDs of the world, uh, rather than containers.
1: Okay. So, uh, you know, the, you mentioned that a lot of the maybe supporting pieces that that make unikernels feasible now uh, are some of the reasons why we're seeing it sort of starting to become more popular. But how, you know, how has, how have you seen those things those things evolve that, that have meant that unikernels are now more relevant than ever?
2: Yeah, well, so, I mean, I guess there's two parts to this. One is kind of the past so many three to five years where um, this idea of kind of unikernels were starting to come into the, uh, the public conversation. And, you know, for a lot of people, the tooling to kind of build and deploy them was just flat out missing. You know, if you, if you weren't a kernel engineer, chances are you were just you know, uh out of luck, and you wouldn't be able to use them. Um, so that's mostly been fixed, though. Um, however, in, again, in my view, it's it's really um, technological market changes, because if you go back to the 90s, people were talking about doing this um, under different names. Um, now, in the late 90s, what we didn't have was, you know, we didn't have virtualization. You know, VMware didn't come out until 2000. Um, we didn't have the public cloud that didn't happen until 2005. Uh, we didn't have SP machines, commodity s machines, so um, it, it, until you know, the early OOs. Uh, similarly, threads on Linux were kind of crap in the 90s. I mean, people had implementations, but they were horrible. <laughs> <So>
1: <laughs> it was,
2: it, you know, it was, it was all these different things that happened that really allowed this idea to take form. And, and a lot of people are wondering why I'm harping on virtualization of public cloud. The reason is is because, at least for our implementation of, of the Unikernel, and, and many others, by the way, um, they're only deployed as virtual machines, and, and there's a couple of reasons why that is. Um, just kind of this broad, quick definition for most of the people listening to this. You know, for us, a Unikernel is a single application running as a virtual machine, um, usually in the cloud, but you know, it could be on like sphere or somewhere else, too. Um, and so what that really means is that compared to something like Linux, which is inherently multi-process, multi-user, explicitly built to run many different programs by many different people, Unicron only really runs one application. There's no concept of users. There's no concept of interactivity. Um, it, these concepts are just completely foreign. And so you can't really translate that to a bare metal machine because then you run into questions of like, how do I deploy this thing? And, you know, how do I interact with it and things like that. Um, but when they're deployed as VMs, um, those questions just disappear and and you can kind of do, do what we're doing.
1: Okay, yeah. so you, 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 we, we'd kind of skipped over a fundamental question, which thankfully you, you did answer, which was what actually is a unikernel. Um, but, uh, so my apologies for, for diving into things before we would actually covered that. Uh, if you, so when you talk about the journey, um, uh, that, that unikernels have taken, um one of the things is like if you just search unikernels and just see mm-hmm. what results come back uh it feels like there was a, a like a resurgence or an upsurgence in people talking about unikernels around like 20 2014 2015 2016 and then mm-hmm. it and then it feels like there's there's a more recent resurgence you know 20 2020 2021 so what 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 saw and like all of those things that you talked about, yep. you know, in, in, in the early 2000s were, were in place by the, the 2015. So why, why didn't things take off then? And why do you think that there's a, a good chance that uh, they're going to take off more now?
2: Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of events that were happening um, around that time. Um, so if we look at some of the implementations that were active during that time, you have, uh, and, and some of these are still active, by the way. Um, but uh, one in particular, Mirage, um, which is an OCaml um, only implementation. Um, so there there was a, uh, it was, you know, mostly academics behind that um, out of Cambridge. Um, and they did form a company called New Kernel Systems at the time that was quickly um, acquired by Docker. And Docker, yeah. you know, and, and this is my opinion, I'm not. You know, I wasn't involved, <laughs> but this, my opinion was they were aqua-hired to improve the Docker on Mac experience. You know, if, if you look at containers, um, running a container on a Mac, you have to have a Linux VM, like you straight up have to have one because containers are inherently part of Linux. And so things like storage and networking become super important when you're doing that on Mac. And, you know, I, I don't know what the situation is in the UK or the Netherlands, but here in San Francisco Bay Area, Macs are extremely prevalent, even though nobody actually deploys to them in production. Right, yeah. so um, that's a that's a huge issue, um, and so uh, that's that's where I think a lot of that came from. But they weren't the only unichrome company at that time. Um, there was there was also uh, one called uh, OSB from Claudius Systems, and so that was a that's another implementation that's still active. Um, uh, albeit the company that was formed around it since pivoted, and so now they're running Cecilia DB, which is a Cassandra replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think, it, it, you know, I'm not I'm not going to really dive into what I think happened with that, but um, there, there there were a couple kind of commercial attempts, at <laughs> and then ever since then, there's been just hundreds of academic. Um, attempts. If you look at some of the academic conferences like OSDI or Usenex or some of these others, they're just filled with uni-kernel, um papers. Uh, some of them have three and four of them uh, ar- around right now. Um, right now, probably the most popular non-company um, based one right now would, would probably be Unicraft. And so that's coming out of the European Commission's Horizon 2020 program. Okay. Um, and so again, lots of kind of academic focus and so forth. But they have a consortium of like 13 different universities and um, they you know, NECs behind it and uh, a few other companies are, are, you know, pushing some R&D towards it. Um, you have UKL from uh, Red Hat, uh, which I guess got swallowed up by IBM. So um, IBM actually had some, um, uh, some R&D that was being done mainly by people like Dan Williams on that front. Um, and, and then uh, in Red Hat, what's really interesting about that was uh, none other than Ulrich Drepper, who you might know as the yeah. 20-year maintainer of Lib C, <laughs> Um, he's also involved um, with, with the UKL project there. So there's actually like quite a lot of activity going on, and a lot of people just don't even know how much activity there is, um, mainly because it hasn't you know, outside of commercial entities, there's, there's only a couple of commercial entities other than ourselves out there. Um, and so I think that's one, one reason why it's not so in everybody's face right now. Um, yeah. So sorry to, to wrap it around. Um, yeah. that's, that's, that's where that five year you know, plus gap came from was you know around that time, 2014 or whatever, again, you just weren't using these things if you weren't a kernel engineer. Um, And that was one thing that we really kind of focused in on. It's like, okay, how do we make it accessible to everybody? And and, In our view, um, it has to be so accessible that even non-developers can use it. So if I'm just, you know, some random um, IT person, at company, I I don't code at all, but I need to stand up a MySQL or I need to stand up an Nginx or whatever, um, I should be able to do that and not have to touch the code at all. Um, and so that's, that's where I think, you know, the accessibility needed to be.
1: Got it. Uh, makes, makes perfect sense. So diving a bit deeper into sort of unikernels like we gave a brief explanation. It's essentially, uh, you know, an application running, uh, solely that application running in a VM, but you know, if, if we take, uh, I don't know, let's say MySQL as a mm-hmm. as a, an example or something like that. Like you can't just spin up a, a MySQL process in a VM. Like it doesn't doesn't work like that. It needs something to boot from. So obviously there's 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 something more than just the application. Like what what does that what does that look like and how does how does that sort of uh, become a unikernel?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm kind of glad you brought this question up. Um, there's this uh, popular misconception that unikernels don't have operating systems, mm-hmm. right? They're like, oh, it's just my application running without an operating system. That's not true whatsoever. There's there's north of ten different unikernels out there. They all have a kernel at the base. Now, whether it does almost nothing versus a lot of other things, that's kind of up to the debate, like on how they should be construed. But every single unikernel out there does have a base operating system that it's that it's using. It's just very very different from our linuxes and our bsds and windows and macs, you know, these are all operating systems that we would put into the general purpose operating system capability. And 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 you have to look at the lineage of these systems. So if we look at linux, we have to go all the way back to 1969, which is like 50 years ago. That's when Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie were working on a pdb7 p be 11 and they were creating Unix. So that machine, that machine was so large, it took up an entire wall. It cost a half a million dollars when it came out. Um, so these concepts that Unix has where um, we, we have this one machine, and it needs to run many different programs by many different people, that's where that concept comes from because those machines were just too large and too expensive back then. Um, it, you could argue for technical reasons why that should, should happen, but it was a business concern, first and foremost, back then when it happened. Um, Now, if you fast forward 20, 30 years into the future, you got uh, Linus Devalde in 1991, and he says, hey, I I have this free version of Unix, and this is a really interesting um, time period because we had Unix wars going on. And so at that time, you had all these companies suing each other for proprietary versions (laughs) of Unix. Um, And Uh it was actually a big problem. Uh, and so, what was also interesting was, you, you know, we're getting the first browsers at that time, Mosaic and so forth. And so, this was kind of the birth of the web, which led to the birth of the first .dot com boom. So it was a very, it was a very um, incredibly important pivot time for a free Unix to kind of come on the scene and, and offer that. But keep in mind, and this is what I was going back earlier. Keep in mind, this is early '90s, so we're still ten years away from. VMware commercially coming out. Um, machines back then, I mean, Linus was probably working on a 286 uh, when he first made his first uh, system, maybe then a 386, right? And so these aren't like the beefiest machines in the world. Um, you know, so VMware comes out, and then five years later, we have small bookstore in Seattle that comes out, Amazon. Um, and, uh, you know, EC2 just kind of completely changes the way a lot of developers push stuff to prod. and so the you know the public cloud in, in our view is that it's just virtualization with with an API on top is all it really is um, so those those two companies Vmware and Amazon Web Services really kind of changed how how we can do this and for the first time this this whole idea of like running one program on a quote machine makes sense now it's, it's a virtual machine. But most all the software we deploy today is on virtual machines. Even even the containers and stuff are on virtual machines. Um, if you're public cloud, you're de facto running on virtual machines. So uh, that's that's kind of where we're at. Um, so that's that lineage kind of explains where where a lot of this comes from.
1: Got it. Got it. So when we're when we're talking about um like the nuts and bolts of of a of a unikernel. You mentioned that <clears throat> the common misconception of uh people thinking that they don't have OS is they do just not in the traditional multipurpose OS of like install an OS, then install an application, then run said, you know, combined install. So it, it's more right. of a it's more of a like the bare minimum you need to like boot something and the bare number of you know drivers or um, sort of whatever it is that you need to get the application that uh, that is that you want to run it within that. Is that sort of the sort of the 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 dummies <laughs> version of what that looks like?
2: Yeah, um, and, and and that is true. There, there's definitely um, a minimal amount of code that goes into these things. Although I think a lot of people will focus on that and they'll be like, oh, look at the, the lines of code. You've got 30 million lines of code in Linux and 30,000 in nanos, for instance, or uh, things of that nature. And, and to me, that's, that's interesting, but that doesn't really do justice to actually what actually is inside this thing um just to compare and contrast you know if i go to amazon and i boot up a ubuntu um, image right now there's like 30 different programs all running um without me even installing a single thing and so that's that's different you know from, from from a viewpoint because uh even if i only have like a ec2 small which has one thread uh that it can run you, you, you basically have 30 programs all fighting over this one thread. And that leads to a massive performance um, cost, which I don't think a lot of people realize how massive that performance cost truly is, mm. um, but, but it exists. It, you talked about drivers, you know, when we provision one of these um, applications to, uh, to the hypervisor, there's like three drivers that we have to support. We have to support a clock, a network, and a disk driver. Now compare that to Linux. About half of that thirty million lines of code that I mentioned in Linux—that's all drivers. Uh, yeah. Why? Well, because Linux deploys to everything, right? Um, not just virtual machines, but every single hardware device that you can think of. And every time you add a new piece of hardware, that's a new driver. Um, it, you know, depending on what it is. And so your average Linux kernel, you know, still has support for like floppy disks, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't even seen except for, you know, the one or two that are <laughs> around my house, you know, I haven't seen a 1.44 floppy forever, you know? Um, yeah. And yet that exists in most default installs. USB, it's it's like, why would you need a USB drive on a virtual machine? Where am I supposed to plug in the USB stick? You know, there's, there's a lot of this stuff. The whole concept of users doesn't even make sense in a DevOps world where, you know, if you're an engineer, like an Uber or an Airbnb, you don't have, like, like one database. You have hundreds or thousands of databases. And so DevOps people have kind of conditioned themselves to um, making these kind of golden VMs. And, you know, in this day and age, it might be a, a container, um, but it's really just designed to run that one application. And so um, it, it really doesn't make sense to have 100 different users or 100 different programs all on that same instance, and and unikernels really kind of enforce this at the kernel level, basically um, to the extent that like we literally can't run other programs on that same instance other than the one that's running. Um, what's kind of cool is that that gives us some of the security that we so desperately need in some of these Linux systems, um, you, you know, right off the bat. Okay.
0: Yeah. Before we go into the security thing, just. Something when you were talking that triggered me. You say, "Cool, if I boot up a VM on Amazon, I have 30,000 things running. Uh, the kernel has a lot of drivers which nobody ever uses. Um, it's all mostly correct. However, those drivers only get loaded into the kernel dynamically if you have the hardware to support them. So basically, your USB driver in the virtual machine." It's still there to have virtual USB key mounting for DevOps or purposes, things like that. You still need that connectivity, but a floppy drive, for instance, probably isn't gonna get loaded there anyway. So even though, yes, the Linux kernel has all that stuff in it, it's not necessarily running on top of that. And following on from that, Typically, okay, not 100% true. There's a lot of uh, garbage running on these VMs that shouldn't be running. And if you're a good DevOps engineer, you would be taking them out anyway. But still, most of that stuff is running for a reason. It's there because you're using it. And I could be wrong. Just a second. I could be wrong here. That's just the difference between dynamically linked versus monolithically built but you still need something like a, a scheduler in your kernel. Because if your are uh, MySQL, if your database operating, a database system is multi-threaded, you still need to uh, shuffle those threads around. So how does that basically differ from the unikernel approach then?
2: Sure. Um, so there's uh, there's two things in there. One one was the number, the, the amount of like craft, if you will. Uh, and then the other thing was that scheduler comment. I'll, I'll, um, I'll address the question real quick. Um, it, you know, it's it's not just the drivers, though. Uh, you know, if I go to Google or Amazon, there's things like there's a little Python daemon running there, um, resolving patches and so forth, uh, things like that. Uh, most of these systems they have not just one, but like more than a dozen different interpreters installed. Mm-hmm. Even though you might not even know that language at all. Uh, that's installed. The only person that's going to um, deal with that is is an attacker. You know if you sudo app get install like one thing, it pulls down thousands of libraries. We, we didn't even address the fact that some of these systems literally have you know two or three thousand different shared libraries on a system that you're never ever going to use. Um, so, so there's a lot of other stuff besides the drivers that are that are there. Um, in terms of the scheduler, uh, it's, it's good that you brought that up. So most unkernels out there are um, going to be single-processed by nature. Um, a lot of them are single-threaded, uh, but many, including Nanos, which is the one we work on, are multi-threaded. Mm-hmm. So having the concept of multi-threads, you're still going to have the concept of a scheduler. What you're not going to have, though, is this concept of switching out process to process. Yeah. And so if we dive into what's called context switching, there's there's a couple different forms of context switching. You can go from kernel thread to kernel thread, you can go from kernel thread to user thread, you can go from user to uh, to user. And these are these are all costly to just some degree. Um, a lot of the earlier unikernel implementations out there observed the multi-process context switch, and they're like, wow, this is this is insanely expensive. They also were looking at the kernel to user land switch which is also um, fairly expensive. In our view, um, and you know what we've measured, uh, we believe that the kernel user is um, worth uh, keeping for security reasons. Um, however, the multi-process uh, context switch, which is still extremely heavy, um, we chose to trash. And so um, the scheduler itself uh, is actually um, pretty bad. <laughs> so there's this paper, called a decade of wasted cores out there. And it basically just talks trash mm-hmm. on the one scheduler. And it's it's not because um, work has not been done on it. Lots of work has been done. and There's many different schedulers that you can actually choose depending on your application's needs. Uh, what, what the deal is, is again, going back to this concept of you have um, a certain amount of hardware power available to you mm-hmm. in, in terms of threads, hyper and so forth. And then you have all these different applications that are fighting to use them. And if you're trying to have like 100 different applications time slice on one thread, you're going to lose. Um, and, and the unikernel kind of gets, gets away from that model and it's like, okay, how many threads does your application actually want or need? And, and, and then position your hardware for that. You know, if, if you want and can use one thread, that's great. If you can use 4,000 threads that you can spin up on Google, great, use it. Um, otherwise, you might want to look at scaling uh, horizontally instead of vertically, mm-hmm. which is also an option and uh, perfectly, perfectly okay. Uh, so, but, but again, diving into the scheduler stuff, there's a lot of things besides switching around processes that happens in, in a general purpose operating system like Linux, besides just scheduling that, uh, that little CPU time. Um, things like ipc how do these processes communicate to each other things like shared memory um, which is very common in software that was written in say the 90s um, there's there's actually a whole set of system five API kind of calls that um, really are married to this concept of multi-process scheduling and and dealing with um, applications to uh to deal with multiple processes and so there's like you know all this, all this stuff that comes with it. Um, a lot of that we don't have to support at all in unikernel land because we simply don't use it. Uh, so that's that's a non-trivial chunk of change that is in the kernel of, say, Linux versus a uh, unikernel implementation. And it gets rid of um, security issues. It gets rid of performance issues. Um, it gets rid of a lot of things. So it's not Again, a lot of people think it's about the size of these things. And it's like, yeah, well, well, it's nice that I can have a 10 megabyte virtual machine. I don't really care that much. It's it's really more about the performance and the security that I'm getting from it versus the size.
1: Makes sense. Okay. So, I mean, one of the most common, uh, I guess, patterns for, for people deploying software at the moment is probably... It is still, it's still more of the, the container approach people, you know, use container Linux or core OS, or, you know, a heavily cut down arch Linux build or something like that. You know, you mentioned like size is not really like, yes, there is a size difference, but that's not, I agree that it's not really terribly motivating unless you're in a very, no. very specific kind of scenario. So. You know, you say that the the performance is the the thing that is more impactful. You know, what sort of order of magnitude could people expect for for a unikernal approach versus something like a a heavily optimized, you know, container build?
2: Sure. And um, so just to start off with, the answer is going to depend, depending on your language of choice, Um, but I'll I'll point out um, for Go, so like a lot of the non-kernel stuff that we, we do in-house is written and go. Um, so uh, nanos.org and ops.city, which are the open source sites for um, our projects, they, uh, they're both written and go. They're Go web servers. They're deployed as unikernels to Google. Um, they can routinely process uh, twice as much um, requests per second on, on uh, Google. And three times as much on AWS. The reason for that is because the drivers and the hypervisor are different um, on the different clouds. But uh, but that's just the example right there. You know, in terms of just uh, throughput, um, latency is also extremely low. And if you're, you know, into the serverless and the uh, um, it, that, those sorts of offerings, you'll notice that the boot time is insanely fast too. Mm. So I, I have demos on like YouTube where we. Uh, we have like a Rust web server running on Google. And I and what I'll do is um, I'll crash the web server, like the entire freaking thing. Uh, it, it, by web server, I mean like the instance, the entire yeah. virtual machine. I'll, I'll crash it on every single request. And so you crash it, request, and then you can boot it up and respond to the next request like instantly. That's really interesting from a couple different angles. Not because you necessarily want to do that, but it just shows you, that it a it boots really fast, and b from a security standpoint, the memory layout is completely randomized and completely different for each and every single request. That just makes an attacker's life go you know completely mad because because an attacker is all about trying to figure out what your memory layout is and what they can execute, what they can write to, um, all all that good stuff. And so there's there's other interesting things that you can do, especially if you're Kind of working in the serverless realm there, um, but uh, but yeah, my SQL, Redis, um, lots of these different applications run not just faster but much faster. Uh, one one uh, end user I was talking to the other day was complaining because they have these massive um, batch jobs that kind of come in, use you know gigs like tens of gigs to hundreds of gigs of RAM, and he's like, you know, this is just something that we can't put into Kubernetes at all. It doesn't work. Um, and, you know, I can spin up a Linux instance using Ansible or whatever. And that, and that kind of works. But, again, these instances are super heavy. And since they're batch jobs, I don't really want to run them. I mean, if they're going to cost me, you know, a thousand bucks a day to run, uh, I, I kind of want to take them down after I'm done with them. And so that was a really interesting use case that we're looking at where he could take his batch job, spin it up, do its work, and then spin back down. Um, and and all that scheduling, by the way, is taken care of by the cloud. This is something that we didn't really talk about yet, um, but and, and something I didn't even know when we got into this. Um, but uh, that's that's a really interesting thing that some people are starting to discover is when people started adopting containers, like back in 2014, 2015, and all that. You know, they're like, oh man, container infrastructure is such a pain in the ass. You know, I got my networking and my storage and my uh, access and all this stuff I have to basically reinvent even though I'm already on the cloud. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's ostensibly what Kubernetes kind of came in and took care of was all the orchestration mess. What's cool with Unicurls is we push that entire responsibility onto the cloud of choice. So when you spin up a Unicurl on Amazon, you're not spinning up a Linux instance and then some orchestration thing on top. What it is is just that that application as a VM. We literally create an AMI out of it, and the only thing that's in it is your application. There is no Linux, there's no Kubernetes, there's nothing like that. Um, and so the network interface that it uses is the native network interface that Google or Amazon gives you. It's uh, the storage, is that native storage that we give you. Uh, so we get a performance boost simply from, from that alone, because we're not creating these underlay and overlay networks, we're not creating these weird convoluted ways of, of um, talking to the devs. It just has raw native access the way the cloud intended. Um, so that's, uh, that's another kind of cool thing when it comes to orchestration is you just, you don't have to deal with it. It, it either works or it doesn't work.
0: Mm. Um, But still, there needs to be some kind of orchestration there because call me crazy, but I don't think that I'm going to start using unikernels to to replace my desktop machine here. This is more into the server space. We have server farms, things like that. Uh, The orchestration layer of Kubernetes is is, uh, mostly responsible for making sure that if one roll uh, falls over another one gets booted up again, if demand goes across uh, over 50-60% of what I have, Mm -hmm. more needs to get spun up. That kind of orchestration is not part of the unikernel, right? You still need something around that to make those unikernels spawn where you need them.
2: So, so there's uh, two things. One, mm-hmm. one you mentioned the desktop. Um, so, so I'll say that at least for from our point of view, um, we uh, we don't touch desktop software yeah. whatsoever. This is strictly for server side yeah, um, system. Uh, so, and you know, for your um, for your other thing, um, there are instance groups. Every cloud has them. So you can say, "Hey, I want an instance group created of this web server, and I want it to, I want you know, three web servers running at all times. And, and if my request per second goes up, you know, X number, um, instantly spawn this new um, uh, server in, inside this instance group. And so, I guess what I'm saying is, um, all the all the different clouds already have this capability already designed. You don't get locked into it because." It's, it's, a, it's a common design that's around um, any cloud, Azure, Google, Amazon, all of them. Yeah,
0: I mean, I used to work for Microsoft in the Azure space, so I kind of know they have the scale sets. Um, they do what you say, but well, what they don't do is have the linking between, uh, for every unikernel running the database, I need three unikernels doing the front-end stuff. I don't know, just figuring. So the more complex things that are the interconnected things, that as far as I know, maybe that changed while I was away, isn't part of the things that they're offering by default. That's still something that's from a a DevOps standpoint needs to be somewhere laid out. And with Kubernetes, (laughs) uh, they use a Helm chart of operators. You're really able to describe a final desired result that can be very complex. How would you catch it out? Yeah, yeah.
2: So so our tool ops um, interfaces with all the different clouds out there, Um, there's no central daemon that can... Controls all this, but you can get you know uh, pretty pretty complex. And like I said, using your scaling groups, auto scaling groups, using these uh, instance templates and so forth, you can design some pretty complex kind of um, configurations. Um, and and say, hey, uh, you know, if if this is producing X number of errors per mm-hmm. minute or whatever, uh, just get rid of it, or you know, use use this other um, image. Um, You can also go the very simple route. Um, You know, I think a lot of scaling issues can get overcomplicated pretty fast. Um, And so we kind of caution people to, you know, start start simple and then go as whatever your um, application actually needs.
0: And you say that the tool ops, that's this one then, I'm putting on the screen here now. So this is basically- So so basically this
2: isn't, uh, sorry, uh, this isn't really a Kubernetes replacement. Um, like I said, a lot of that orchestration stuff goes out the window because it's using actual, like, real cloud-native stuff—not—not a—not a native on top of native, but uh, actually using the, the actual primitives that every hypervisor would support. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, this will build your image. Um, a lot of people, you know, aren't using Nanos the kernel themselves um, personally because you know it's. It's a kernel and there's 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 lots of random things that you have to do um, to to actually build the image. And so Ops kind of makes it easy. It'll like look at your binary, grab all the shared libraries that might be linked to it, mm-hmm. you know, build the actual disk image, upload it to the cloud, build the AMI or you know whatever it is, and then um, also allow you to you know spawn instances or put them into scaling groups or things like okay. like that. So. Yeah,
0: that does sound a bit like what Docker does on the one hand, building the container, putting all the libraries together, uh, but it does have some autocon discover, discovery, if I understand correctly, and also a little bit of what Kubernetes would do for the orchestration stuff then. so Yeah,
2: of, I think it's, uh, you know, if, if you're going to compare it to um, DevOps tooling, the, the, the closest tool that I would point to would be like a Terraform, yeah. although it's, it's a it. little bit... It's, it's still not quite Terraform either. So it's, uh, but, but, but that's probably the closest in comparing to all the different tools out there. You know, Terraform is, um, uh, there's a lot of like golden image type of configuration stuff that goes into Terraform. And a lot of that stuff just goes out the window because again, um, we're provisioning one application, not like a thousand different things. You know, it, when you look at some of these Terraform scripts, I mean, people install and configure all sorts of stuff, like like a lot. I mean, some of these maybe thousands of lines um, of HCL, so it's a uh, it, there's a lot going on there. And um, unit kernels really kind of prevent you from doing that. Um, what they say is like, hey, if you actually need this functionality, um, add it to your application. You know, throw it in as Caleb or whatever. But but you don't need to be. You know. When we talk about user rights, for instance, again, users are a foreign concept to Unicorels. So you're not having to go and check, like, you know, does this user have access to this thing, and can this user spawn this daemon? Um, you know, speaking of spawning daemons, you just simply can't even do that. Again, it's one application, not a hundred or thousand different applications, and so a, a lot of this configuration just goes off the window. Um, there's just no room for it in you online.
0: Yeah, but. Not having users also can be a problem. I mean, the reason that we have users on systems is on the one hand, there may be m- more than one person working on the system. That's one reason sure. for it. But even for a single user system, you have multiple users to have a kind of separation of responsibilities, privileges, things like that. I mean, things like privilege escalation is one of the biggest malware thing
2: attempts out there. Sure, If you only have again, one user,
0: it's all root.
2: Yeah. I, again, though, unikernels only have one application. They're mm-hmm. literally... I cannot... I cannot um, so suppose I find a variability in a unicurl. I nanos.org. It's running Go, and some new zero-day thing comes out for Go. Um, you know, what's the first thing I want to do? I, I probably want to spawn a shell, or I want to like cat Etsy password, or you know, whatever it is I want to do. Um, I really can't issue any commands. You know, I say command, but what is a command? It's it's another program running. I literally can't run other programs. If I want to take advantage of that zero day, I'm relegated to using something like drop gadgets. And if you look at most Rock gadget chains out there, the very first thing they do is exactly bin shell. Um, be, why? Because it's just way too complicated to code up, say, a MySQL client as pure Rock gadgets. That's kind of the level of intensity that it takes to uh, attack these things. I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying I've never seen a MySQL client written in pure raw gadgets. And so going back to your users question, um, yes, users make a lot of sense when you're using something like Linux, where there's inherently multiple programs that are running inherently multiple users, right? Um, You can't SSH into these things. You can't fork a shell. You can't run other programs. And so um, the whole concept of users and passwords and access rights and all that stuff,
0: doesn't make any sense because there's only one thing running. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say you're wrong because I can SSH to a unikernel that builds
2: around SSH. It's just, why would I? There's nothing else to do there. No, 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 (laughs) I'm I'm saying you you, you can't. That whole concept doesn't work because SSH... I um, could build a unikernel that just
0: does SSH into nothing. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, because... uh,
0: It makes no no sense. It makes no sense.
2: So so, so when I I have a SSH client going to SSH um, server, it it spawns a shell and it creates a new uh, session. And and you literally can't do that um, in unikernels. Every single time I type in LS or CD or whatever, those are different programs, right? (laughs) None of that works in unikernel land. Um, it's, it's, It's literally like, if you want LS functionality or whatever, you have to code that into your application. Um, and so things like like a web shell, for instance, you could do something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, although I don't know anybody who does that, but the attackers, right? So <laughs> it's uh, it, 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 and honestly, a lot of those they shell out anyway. So if they wouldn't work, regardless, yeah, yeah. Um, like like you literally have to have the code inside your application. Security-wise,
0: it also kind of solves the deployment of command and control centers because there's nowhere to deploy the thing because there again, there right. is nothing outside the, the universe of that single unikernel.
2: Right. I mean, you, you, I basically the way I would attack these things is, and, and I can think of a couple of ways. Um, you know, there's, there's things called um, uh, process hollowing, where you literally like take over the process. Although in this case, it would probably just crash uh, the system. <laughs> Because there's only one process, um, uh, you could theoretically do the same thing with a thread. But again, I mean, you're you're talking a very sophisticated level of attack there. Um, okay. So it's it, doing that without like crashing it would be extremely extremely difficult, in my opinion.
0: And also, there's not a mass attack factor, I guess, because every unikernel out there is potentially different because uh, that's something we're going to go into deeper later on how you build these. Yeah. Things, I right? mean, I,
2: we we can touch on that real quickly, though. you know if you if you look at so if you look at a lot of con- container security issues out there, what's what's the problem? Is like somebody is using some open source component. They're using some sort of you know JavaScript dependency or Ruby dependency or whatever. And surprise, surprise, there's a crypto miner inside of it, right? And so they, they pull it in, they deploy it to their infrastructure, and all of a sudden they have a crypto miner running. But you have to like you have to realize what actually is happening when they deploy that. It's it's not like the crypto miner springs to life. What happens is they shell out, they download the crypto miner, they probably compile it, they they probably look for other crypto miners and try to kill those off first, so so they're not eating the CPU. <laughs> Like, like they literally do this um it, it, you know there's there's about 20 different steps that happens before that crypto miner starts actually executing and all those steps are different programs different processes that are happening um none of them not even one of those would actually work inside of a unicorn and when you start thinking about a lot of these attack vectors, say i just wanted my sequel i you know i'll dump your database i'm going to shell out i'm going to call my sequel well you know, MySQL is not installed to begin with, so somehow you're going to have to pseudo-app to install, but that doesn't really work because, again, that's another process. And when you start thinking of all these different steps, a lot of it just stops working um, immediately.
1: And thank you to Ian for the first part of our Unikernel series. So it's going to be a bit of a two-parter, and uh, look forward to hearing more from Ian coming up next. But Unless there's anything else for you on this episode.
0: Um, No, I think I made enough of a nuisance of myself during the interview. So I'm going to be silent now. Mm, That sounds very unlike you. Well, in that case,
1: that is all the time we have for today. You can support this podcast by becoming a patron. Every contribution really does help. We're on YouTube. You can like, subscribe, comment, hit the notification bell and do all the YouTube things. Please go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page. And for more information about this podcast, you can also follow us on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag. And you can always send your email to podcast at Roaring Until next time, my name is somewhat educated on unikernels, Dave.
0: And my name is, how can I do this without breaking my vow of silence? I don't know, Jon?
1: Oh, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then.
0: Too convoluted.
1: Ah, no more convoluted than usual.